Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Associated Podcast mini-series where we dive into the fine art of breaking into venture. I'm Tunde and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Francesca. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm good, yeah, just enjoying, enjoying the Swedish summer, it's really bright here. My sleep patterns have been completely disturbed but in a positive way. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm good. A bit less sunny here in Berlin, but I think the weather is supposed to be improving. And yeah, I had a very nice relaxing Sunday. And what nicer way to finish it up than a little chat with you today, Tunday. Yeah, exactly. I am really happy to be spending my two months of Swedish sun with you inside recording. I could wish for nothing else, <laughs> um, but we do it for the, for the people. We do, we do. Amazing. And so what's this episode about? Should we tell our listeners? Yeah, let's. So this episode is about company evaluation. So we're going to be focusing on all of the technical aspects that come into venture roles and venture interviews. So tackling how you kind of get through case studies, as well as the the more specific questions around metrics and traction and all of these long, scary words. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and uh, to your point of long, scary words, we did spend some time um, before this episode prepping, uh, way more than the other ones. So hopefully we make sure that we make it uh, less daunting for, for you guys once you get sent it in an email packaged to you in an intimidating way um, to do, or not necessarily, right, Tindy? I think the first thing that that we need to do is clarify what we mean by a case study and the different forms they can take. There are tons of different types of case studies and across my adventures on the interview trail, I saw a few weird and wonderful ones. So even when it comes to case studies, there are two obvious delineations. There are kind of take home versus do at the fund or do kind of in a timed controlled setting under Zoom. And then on top of that, within those case studies, sometimes I've been I've been given things as weird as wonderful as having like a list of 10 companies and picking my favorite three and having to write kind of brief one pages as to why I selected those three. Other times I've been given like a company and a, a memo and a booklet of information and been told to plug away and write a thesis as to how, whether or not I'd invest and then I guess you you have some other experiences that you could probably share. I don't want to monopolize them. No, I think the only the only one that I have had in addition is asking me to find a company and do my own case study on it and and indications of what they would want to see. So that obviously brings in an additional layer of making sure that you've understood what the VC is looking for and that it's aligned with their, their investment thesis. But I think, I think we've covered most of, uh, most of the different uh, shapes that they can, they can come in. Um, but additionally, I think it's also good to mention in addition to the name of the company in the URL, what additional information that you can be sent. So an example is the finances, right? Or or some some shape or form of the finances. Um, I, hear, I imagine a lot of bankers would be sh- 
shaking and <laughs> disapproval <laughs> of some some kind of uh, format that it gets sent through to you, but you can be sent the finances to make an assessment. Anything else? Yeah. So in addition, I've been sent pitch decks of of said companies. Sometimes I've been sent like a description of the business as well as an overview of what's happened in the last 12 months. The information you get is generally fairly diverse. Sometimes you you kind of get these almost, I don't know, treasure hunts where you have like nothing. And then the, part of the job is also figuring out what you can find out. Other times you have like a kind of buffet of information fed to you and then maybe the task is actually figuring out how how on earth do I sift through this in like a in a timed exercise and come out with something useful so we're often testing different skills but actually if if you want to have see some examples of maybe what the output of some of these case studies look like I actually published a few of those which we'll kind of include in the in the show notes so you can also check those out and get a feel for what the what some of the different formats documents that you might end up producing are maybe the thing we should cover before we go into maybe specific questions is the general approach um, or the general categories of things that that vcs are interested in about these companies so francesca would you like to run through some of the the like obvious categories that, that come up pretty much every time no matter the form of the case study yeah sure but just before I do, there's one more piece of data that I was sent in case studies that I completely flummoxed uh, me when I received it. It's something called a cohort analysis. Um, and that was given to me um, in a time session. And I'd never seen one of those before. And essentially what it is, is when a company or a startup receives a new customer um, in a particular month normally but it can be broken down by week they're grouped into a cohort and then their behavior is analyzed in terms of how often they repurchase or they drop off Um, it's it's pretty straightforward once you've got your head around what a cohort analysis is so quick Google, uh, quick YouTube video, just, just to cover the basis if that comes up to get your understanding of, of how that works. This is, I would really recommend you do because if you've never seen one before and then you're under time pressure, um, you could can find it very intimidating like I did. So yeah, top, top tip, just do a YouTube video on cohort analysis so it doesn't terrify you when you see it for the first time. And to your question, Tendi, so... What's quite nice about venture capital is that it's it's not rocket science. A lot of the time, VCs look for the same thing, same characteristics of a business. And I mean, everyone has slightly different nuances in wording, but as a general fail-safe, these are the things that in your case study you need to cover in some shape or form. So team market and maybe today we can dig into a little bit more into what we mean by market before I continue or do we want to loop back we can we can loop back I think okay market competition product traction business model existing financing round and past financing round often classed as cap table in inverted brackets timing and then obviously suitability for the fund whether whether it's a 
within the investment thesis, you can provide a value add as an investor. Um, that's not done in order. Just just structure it in the way that feels natural to you. Often it will come, but there's tons of resources out there that that basically outline this. But we just thought we'd we'd run through them quite quickly, so you get an idea when when we go through the rest of the podcast where these things might fit within those categories. But yes, to market they. Yeah, so market is quite a wide term. So normally when you talk about market, you could be talking about anything from the kind of size of the market to the you know the, the presence of alternatives, whether it's a kind of growing industry, etc. I think one of the reasons why I wanted to we wanted to take a bit more time to unpack it is because we kind of consider market and competition separate. They are interlinked. But when VCs talk about market, they're normally talking about market size, whether the current market size or the or the perceived future one. And the, the reason why this is important is that VCs typically are investing in, in companies in, in big markets because the ultimate size of the companies at the end, when, when there's an exit, needs to be large enough to kind of sustain a fund returning outcome, which we kind of discussed a bit in the early episodes. Yeah, no, it's a very good point, and and maybe a useful tidbit of of information. Some funds look at market is that it's already existing and it's already huge, and that's how they like to perceive it. And others see market in a different way, where they're not so intimidated by it not being so big, but the startup has the opportunity to make it. Huge. So a good example is Uber or Airbnb, where they created these vast markets through designing a clever business model. So just just be aware of that. And another thing is that all of these factors are important. VCs wouldn't list them if they weren't. But some have, and not necessarily even funds, but some people within those funds have preferences around certain things that they they would prioritize over others. They can be quite methodical when it comes to to evaluating the company and can quantify it in some shape or form. So again, you know, maybe an additional question to ask the fund. Uh, Stay tuned for the next episode is what do you prioritize in terms of evaluating a company? And that can also really help on the case study to put some emphasis on a certain category over others. Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing to remember as well, when just before we you go into any of these case studies, is that there is often no right answer. And hopefully, hopefully the fund is kind of more testing the quality of your thinking rather than just whether you kind of align to whatever decision they aligned to previously. So that's, you know, I wouldn't be afraid of, as long as you you can argue your position, you argue your position well, I wouldn't be afraid of necessarily being slightly different from the fund in terms of like your skew or your judgment in the end. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a very valid point. And Again, I think to, to emphasize in this episode, we're not going to sort of take in a, an example and run you through how you would write up the, the case study. Hopefully, we're just going to pick certain things that you just need to be aware of or take into consideration. And one of the things that often comes up in the business model 
section slash traction section is like what what are the key metrics are you looking for when evaluating a company Tunde do you want to have a stab at that yeah so a good starting point is to think about how how the company makes money depending on the amount of information you have one 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 place to to begin is to kind of go to the company's website try and understand their business model, whether it's they're selling subscriptions or they're doing volume-based pricing or it's an ad-driven business or whatever it is, try and understand that and then start doing the mechanics or thinking through the mechanics afterwards of how much money do they need to spend to get those customers in the final service, those customers once they are in part of that part of that equation and you know that there are multiple types of different business models so it's it's hard to give a definitive answer it will change from SaaS to marketplaces and even within kind of subsections of that but then I guess the 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 next step is to look at how once you kind of establish that the company can make money whether it can grow so how does it grow what channels does it use and is that also a significant cost are things that I like to keep in mind here. I think that's a fairly good like overview of you know maybe how to think about metrics, especially around the kind of traction and profitability side. Mm-hmm. And obviously there are, as I said, there are many kind of different iterations of that. But then there's another viewpoint with which uh, VCs look at metrics, especially at the early stage where things are a bit less certain and there's you know you're not sure about the staying power. Um, metrics also can be a very good source of information about how the rest of the world interacts with the product. And so that's going, harking back to what Francesca was saying earlier, that's where you start looking at things like cohort analyses to see whether, you know, if on month one, some hundred people joined, how many of them are still there on, sorry, if in month zero, hundred people joined, how many of them are still there in month four, still using the product every day amongst other things. And that will sometimes give you like a certainty that like a product is really working, is really delivering value. And at the early stage, having that kind of return for the customer or like utility for the customer is sometimes an even better North Star than someone who's managed to kind of, you know, force a hundred people down their funnel. Yeah, I think I think that's really, really well explained. And I think the nice thing about the world we live in today is that there's so much information on the internet. So if you are given a name of a company and you get the gist of the kind of business model that it has, you can Google what does a good SaaS B2B product metrics look like? And then you can start mapping out and comparing, okay, this this is apparently industry classed as good. Is this looking like this business is going along that route? And if the answer is yes, then argue yes. If it's no, then you can argue no. And and no can and can be an, an, an estimation, or it can be through the the financials that you're sent through. Key things like okay, the customer acquisition cost. We can get a little bit more into that. Is super high. Like, why is that? 
end. And so what the VC is really looking for in this exercise is you being able to form an opinion and justify it. And and, and as Tindy says, it's not necessarily a right or wrong answer, but they're very they're going to be very curious to know what, what you're targeting and why you're targeting it and the evidence base behind your reasoning. So what I often did was create an Excel sp- spreadsheet, even if I didn't have the, the financials to kind of break down how, how the company is making money, how are they acquiring customers, the costs in terms of staff, you know, that, that would need to be reasonable in order for this company to, to not come out in, in the red in, in such like a way that it's just like this, this company is just going to burn forever. And there's no, there's no sign that it's going to, going to improve. So I think that's, that's something that, that hopefully is helpful. For, for you guys. Um, so I know we've been saying that in this case study, there's no right answer exactly to a lot of your reasoning and, and how you've written your, your case study. But from my experience, there are two questions that frequently came up which it certainly helps just to know the answers to rather than having to muddle through your brain the reasoning behind it so hopefully with these two questions that we're going to be discussing we're giving you a cheat sheet here guys Tony do you want to ask me this question this question brings back our old friends, uh, CAC, so customer acquisition cost, and uh, CLTV, so customer lifetime value. And it is as simple as this, you know, what is a, you know, a good or best in class ratio for CLTV to CAC? And I'll start with the spoilers. The answer is, you know, three to one. So the lifetime value of the customer should hopefully be three or more times the amount that it costs to acquire the customer. That's good for a number of reasons. One, it just means that you're kind of making money. At least you have a chance to make money. It's not negative. The reason why it's you know, three, three to one and not two to one or 1.5 to one is that uh, customer acquisition costs, especially at the early stage, are often not stable. So they don't scale that well. So having you know, three to one ratio as an, as an investor and also kind of as a business gives you a very healthy buffer which you can use or which which will you know potentially decrease as you scale but will still leave hopefully leave room for a healthy profitable business kind of after you've paid those acquisition costs mm. and also i think it's worth clarifying with the customer acquisition costs that rarely takes into account the operational costs of the business so We'll put in the show notes the various different ways you can calculate this equation. It does vary whether you include the staff, the sales staff costs in that ratio or not. I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer. We'll we'll send some links of examples of of both. But yeah, I think that's another thing to take into account that the, the operational costs are not included. So do you want to make some room for for those costs as well? Exactly. And do you want to do you want to hand over kind of next question? Sure. So the next question is 
what growth rates are you looking for in a startup? And the again, I'll do it in 10 days format. The right answer is 3x, 2x, 2x. And what I mean by that is that the company in its first year grows by three grows three times in terms of its revenue. And then in subsequent years, it grows double and then double again. And why, you ask, is this the, the right answer to the question? And basically, there's a quite a famous article. Again, we'll link it to the show notes whereby a huge market analysis was done identifying the best in class companies mind you, I think the majority of them were SaaS, that that succeeded in becoming unicorns, market leaders in their industry. And this was the growth pattern that they demonstrated. Um, it's by no means the industry norm. Um, but if you do see this behavior on the financials that might have been sent through to you, make sure that you highlight that this is the three, three, two, two ratio, and you'll get lots of brownie points for identifying that pattern. But it's worth caveating, I should say, that a lot of the time founders will come up to Project A and say to us, what minimum revenue do you need to see? And I think it's it's very much in line with this um, multiple is that we're not really looking for revenue personally at Project A, I think it varies from fund to fund. We're looking at growth rate. So we're looking at fast growth rate. And often it's an early stage company. So you don't have uh, evidence of the 3-2-2 ratio that we've been discussing. But roughly we like, I mean, we get very excited with 10% growth month on month. So again, be aware of that. Um, If you can get hold of the financial data to look for for that signal that it's growing quickly is something that we look for and get very excited about at Project A. Yeah, um, and actually speaking of, if you want to kind of nerd out on on metrics, especially in and around SaaS, then 0.9 annually releases what they call like a SaaS napkin, which has benchmarks for what it takes, so to speak, to raise uh, a seed, a Series A, and a Series B, and what you know, point nine is a is a great kind of SaaS focused fund based out of Berlin. And what what they do is they kind of survey a bunch of founders from inside and outside of their portfolio, and kind of put that data together. So that's always a very that's a very good place to go if you're a bit confused and want to get a view on what good looks like. Before we move on, one thing aside from knowing the different axes on which VCs evaluate the companies on, there are at least two business models where you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't have a good understanding of how, how they work in practice. And those are SaaS, which is software as a service, and marketplace businesses. The majority of the, the companies that you see on TechCrunch raising f- funding can be bucketed into these two categories. So you would be yeah shooting yourself in the foot to not do your homework a bit. Mm. Agreed. And then also, normally funds have a medium post or two about how they evaluate business models, companies, the specific business models, sectors that they look into. So that can also be super helpful that you can align 
your um, your categories that you lean towards or companies that you if you have the choice of selecting um, are aligned with the fund and again we'll put this in the show notes for example speed invest has a network effects team and they do a really good medium article about how they evaluate a network effects focused business so yeah just as a top tip before you start your case study have a good old nosy um, of how they that team if they've shown evaluate a company um, super helpful cool Shall we give our brains a bit of a break, Tundi? I feel like we've done quite a lot of quantitative vibe, uh, yeah. quantitative, uh, analysis of a company, but what is equally important, if not more so in my mind, is the qualitative side of evaluating a company. And that is often in the form of the founder section, right? Of a lot of the time, and rightly so, funds focus on whether the founders or founders are the right fit for the company. And it's often asked, what do you think makes a good founder? So having having met a few in your time, Tundi, I'd be curious to know what what you think about this question and how you'd answer it. Yeah, so this is a this is an interesting question, and it's a bit prickly because you're essentially having to kind of judge a person. It's even harder to do in a case study because maybe some of the softer questions you can't really evaluate or answer because you never get to meet the person. But typically. I look at a number of things. So the first one, which is maybe the easiest one to do in a case study, is why are they equipped to succeed? And that can come from many different, or your your evidence for that can come from many different sources. So it might be previous success in something else and something difficult. It might be domain expertise, whether that's like, you know, an academic specialty or something in, in deep tech or or just like a, a, a familiarity with a problem that other people have never seen before through personal experience. And then there is the kind of flavor of the month um, in this current market, which is founders who were early at something something big, though people who are early at, at startups that have, have been really successful, um, as well as serial entrepreneurs. So that's, that's kind of the equip to succeed side of things. Why are they better positioned to, to do it than others? Then there's a question around the the founders, maybe ambition and resilience. So obviously, venture-backed startups are normally an extremely long journey. So you need to kind of come to an assessment of whether the founder, you know, one, even wants to build your wonderful fund-returning company, your founder, or even if they want to build it, whether they maybe have the staying power to do that. Again, it's a can of worms to think, how do you do that from a laptop on the other side of the internet during a pandemic, but good luck. And then the last, uh, then there are some other kind of softer aspects, like whether you you believe the founding team are capable of like recruiting, or recruiting at a high a high caliber of person, or or fundraising in the future, which unfortunately also kind of intersects with that story because it may, you may have someone who knows all about the subject matter and knows exactly how to build that product, but often they still need to bring people around them and they need to bring money on board. And that's also highly important. 
maybe just to add from a from an icebreaker perspective, we typically look really closely at the first one. So we we typically look really closely for domain experts. So people who have really, you know, wrestled with the problem before. So one of our companies is, you know, a former a former tax lawyer who is making software for tax lawyers. And then we have another one, which is like a former brand licensing professional who is making software for brand licensing professionals. So we, we really believe in that domain expertise as like a way to kind of iterate towards product market fit, but there are you know many ways to skin a cat and there are many companies which were founded by non-domain experts, which have been extremely successful. Yeah. Right. I think that's, that's a very good point. I only have two things to add to that because I thought it was such a brilliant answer the first is more to your point and it can be very hard to do this in a case study scenario because you haven't met the founders before so uh as a top tip if you can get hold of any podcast any youtube video or indeed if if you have not been told otherwise and you're feeling plucky reach out to the founder directly and just I think that that does come across very well from the VC's perspective that you say look I've gone the extra mile I actually had a chat with a founder for 15 minutes you get so much information from a conversation rather than a LinkedIn profile and so as much information you can gather from that person to get a feel of who they are um kind of probably the second part of Tunde's of like, do you think um, they have that ability to take a company right through to becoming a fun returner? Um, you'll get way more from a 15 minute podcast than you or a conversation than you can from, from a CV. Um, and I think my next additional minor point is that one thing we look at project A is that very often there's more than one founder on the team. So we often try and look at whether they're complementary to one another in terms of their their skill sets and and expertise, whether as a combination, they're going to make a power couple or throuple um, and and succeed. (laughs) yeah um and i think that's that's also um important to take into consideration is like that complementary factor you don't necessarily want two people with the exact same background and skill set you want two founders or three founders that complement each other in terms of their strengths and weaknesses um and and to that point one of them i think and maybe I'd be curious to know what you think about this today. My theory is, is that often with early stage startups, 70% of it is storytelling, whether as a founder, you can sell your product to not only customers, but also VCs in a pitch. And there are many times where the, the company seems pretty good, but at the end of the day, it's a, a it's it's a product you need to sell and they can't sell the idea or the product to me. I don't have enough faith that they'll be able to sell it against another competitor that 
that can sell a bigger dream and it's more appealing. So I think there's a huge part to play, unfortunately, in the founder's ability to sell, arguably even more so than the product in of itself. If you can convince me that it's amazing, um, when in fact there's a lot to be done in order to get there, that goes a long way um, through a screen um, a lot of the time. Yeah, it's tough. Sometimes you see you see like really interesting products and really, 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 really great innovations. And then you just can't necessarily see the person selling it to, to like a, a mass of people. Sometimes, and this is going back to the beauty of metrics, sometimes the metrics prove, you, prove that you're wrong, but sometimes they prove you right. And yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, it's a, it's one of the maybe harder parts about the, mm. the, the job where it's like charisma, especially at the early stage, just getting people to, you know, take your half broken thing in for a pilot, getting those, you know, being able to recruit a developer for, let's say, two thirds of the market price, et cetera. Those are all really accretive at the early stage. And, and a lot of those things come from, you know, I don't know, founder charisma. Yeah. And um I think I think it is it's so in important. And I think it's it's also will serve you very well in the interview process. If you said, look, I listened to a podcast and I wasn't convinced by them as a founder, and this is why I wouldn't invest in them, VCs would be Im- impressed, to be honest, that that you've really t- gone the extra mile to assess the the founder's personality because um it's not much without the people leading it at the end of the day completely agreed um i think maybe one last question to to kind of wrap this up or one last topic to wrap this up would be just thinking about how you would go about valuing the business so this gets asked fairly often you have to come up with a price or evaluations and it's it's definitely a lot more art than it is science mm. so i am going to leave the art to the artist so the wonderful francesca will be answering so kind so kind but before i paint the picasso of all valuations i feel like it's only right that maybe we do it in order of stage because i think it varies right from stage to stage about how much data you have to make the decision on valuation. And as you are the pre-seed king, I feel like you should start with how you value companies at Icebreaker. Thank you for pulling an Uno reverse card on me there. At Icebreaker, because we're so early, it's pretty difficult to kind of use like one of the the more tried and tested later stage valuation methodologies that other people use. So we can't really use multiples or we definitely can't do a DCF. So typically what early stage funds do is they kind of have specific ownership targets, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% normally. And then they look at the capital requirements of the company. So how much that company is raising. So let's say you're raising 200,000 euros and the, the fund has an ownership target of 10%, then you basically do 200,000 divided by 10%, which equates to 2 million post money. And therefore, that's the valuation of the company. That's really the main way the companies are valued right now. Obviously, as the market moves and gets more competitive, founders have increasing amounts of leverage. So 
you can kind of get squeezed and you're you're always kind of competing with the other funds but that's really how it works yeah that's certainly the base layer so to speak of company valuation and then as the company matures there are some things that you can layer on top of that after the company has been generating revenue and has a bit more data behind it so additionally to that okay uh, you're giving away 20% of your business which is there or thereabouts per round Um, you also start looking at your burn rate and with this new funding round, how much money do you need in order to give you enough runway to demonstrate to, say, the Series A investors that you you deserve more money? <laughs> um, so basically, how, how much money you need to last per per month? Then that needs to be aligned with that twenty percent and that that number. A little bit more. Uh, scientific methodology that you can start applying to maybe a late seed series A round is looking at multiples. And what I mean by multiples is that typically you take the revenue of the business and then the valuation of the company is a multiple of that revenue. And defining what that multiple should look like we use a certain methodology whereby you go onto the public market and you look at what similar companies, i.e. what I mean by similar is similar business models, similar sector, EV to revenue multiple looks like. And then you apply that multiple to your startup. So say, for example, it's a company within B2B SaaS uh, payments. You would go on to PayPal and look at their EV to <laughs> revenue multiple and say, okay, you apply that to your startup and say, hey, actually that, that multiple looks about right. And why, why you do that? It's because the end goal is for that company to either be sold or to be listed IPO on the stock exchange. So that's where you're hoping that the same multiple is going to happen when the company goes public. And obviously at that time, it's going to have much higher revenue from when you initially invest. And then everyone's happy because you've made a lot more money. basically. <laughs> Not poetically put, but it makes sense, right, Tunday? <laughs> It does. It does make a lot of sense, Francesca. And aside from enterprise value over revenue, there are a number of other valuation multiples which are used uh, for later stage businesses. So really common to see at the at the growth stage and in, in publicly traded companies is EV, so enterprise value over EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. This This metric is is actually the more prevalent metric for valuing public companies, but often isn't useful in the case of startups until they're a bit more mature, as they often don't have positive EBITDA yet. But that's the that's that's one of the the methodologies which you may use or will be useful if you're applying to to grow funds. Another valuation technique, which is again, you know, not so suited to to early stage, but becomes increasingly relevant as you as as companies begin to mature and as you go later and later in the fund 
cycle is the DCF, which is the discounted cash flow analysis. This analysis essentially involves building a model, forecasting future cash flows, and then discounting them to their present value and adding the sums of those cash flows together to get the final value of the company. Um, but again, uh, a methodology more suited to the later stage. Got it. So that, that's a little bit more on the on the growth stage evaluation. But I suppose Tundi and I are more early stage VC. So we're, we're leaning towards the first two um, ways of evaluating I mean, companies. I, I hope no one from my former banking life hears this because I have truly forgotten how to do a DCF. I, like I just, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's. It's really, it's really, it's really dark <laughs> that like you spend f- three years of your life not sleeping doing this, and it can just leave and like to just completely gone. Funny how your brain yeah, does that. Yeah, right? I'm sure it would come back quickly, but uh, at least I lied to myself that it will come back quickly. Amazing. Well, I think we've covered quite a lot of stuff there today, which I hope is very helpful for our listeners. Yeah. So, so, so do I. I think. Yeah. I think this has been. This has been great. This has been really fun maybe the, the most jargony of our episode so um if they we've done our best to try and like explain some of the concepts in here and some of the, the the keywords but if there are any questions please feel free to reach out to us on twitter at associated underscore pod and francesca yeah. will happily and diligently answer your questions in less than 280 characters <laughs> yes and and also if you fancy dropping us a longer line feel free to to email us at associated.podcast at gmail.com and yes as we mentioned before we'll be putting a lot of links on the show notes to direct you to more information especially do check out 10 days blog on on the past case studies that he's done because they're fantastic and yes please do tune in to our next episode which is less jargony all about personal questions and why on earth vcs are asking you them thanks bye